hop, skipping, and jumping, covering several chapters a night in Isaiah. We come to a big break at the end of this section, where it's like part two of Isaiah, and the tone is much different. So instead of covering several chapters per night, starting next week, we'll probably cover two messages per chapter. It's a very rich section, but tonight... Chapters 36 to 39 in Isaiah, and we're introduced to a great man of God named Hezekiah. Came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that Sennacherib, an evil king, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings of Israel, and one of the greatest kings in history. What was so great about him? He helped bring revival in a bad time in Israel's history. And he said, we need to return to the Lord and get rid of the idols. And you read about that over in Chronicles, where they destroyed idols and the, the evil shrines and the statues, and they punished the false prophets. We need leaders like Hezekiah. Can you imagine if someone in Congress stood up and said, we need to turn things around and go back to God? Destroy idolatry and pornography and these terrible things, LGBT. Are you with me, men and women? Can you imagine our president? Can you imagine any president doing that? Hezekiah did it, and God used him. And yet, as we'll see tonight, he wasn't perfect. Best of men are still men at best. And so we'll see his strengths and his weaknesses. We're introduced to Sennacherib. And someone else, his right-hand man, verse 2, Rabshakeh, which could be his title or his name. Sennacherib was the king of Israel. He had taken north Israel and much of Judah, including these fortified cities, but not Jerusalem yet, the capital. So they're laying siege to it, and so he sends Rabshakeh as his leading general to take Jerusalem. That's your order. Don't come back empty-handed. Verse 3, Rabshakeh sent a message to Hezekiah's three closest advisors, I guess you'd say his cabinet. And in verse 4, there's a, they relay this message. They're ambassadors. And I mentioned ambassador this morning. Remember, Apostle Paul said, I am ambassador for Jesus, so are we. Ambassadors should repeat a message without adding their opinion or taking away and changing it around. And so... Neither should we. We should share the gospel. Teach what the Bible says without saying, well, it seems to me my opinion. Inspired prophets of the Bible repeated God's words verbatim. And so should we when we tell people the gospel. Now, some have said this guy, Rabshakeh, is kind of like the devil. He's, he's up to no good. He's lying. He's trying to go against God's people. He's threatening. He's casting doubt. For example, it says here, Rabshakeh sent this message to Hezekiah. Who are you trusting? You're trusting in this invisible God. He hasn't protected the Jews up north. Are you trusting Egyptians? We're going to conquer them. You can't stop us. Who are you trusting? He keeps repeating that question. Who do you trust? Good question. Who do you trust? Do you trust in the living God? Do you trust in yourself? Do you trust in what's cool and what other people think? 
Hezekiah trusted in God, but his weaknesses also trusted in Egypt, and he shouldn't have done that. Remember, the Jews had been slaves down there. They, God delivered them, and God kept saying, don't go back to Egypt. Don't trust in them. Even, now, apply that today. I wonder if anybody is saying to Netanyahu, uh, we're standing all alone. We can't trust anybody else. They've all turned on us at one time or another in the past. Let's turn to God. Even George Washington warned about making ungodly alliances with other countries. Hezekiah trusted in God, and he should have, but he also trusted in Egypt, and he shouldn't have. Verse 7, Rabshak, and now twist the facts. Look what he says here. He says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he who hides places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and so forth? So he's, he's saying, we're trusting in this God. That was a bald-faced lie. He, he trusted in the gods of the Assyrians, not the God of the Jews. So he's twisting it. And he says, we destroyed these idols. No, he didn't do that. It was Hezekiah at God's command. Destroyed the idols and the shrines of the false god. And it says here, taken away and said to Jude in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. I pledge therefore and so forth. He's got things all twisted around because he's lying like the devil uh, mixes truth and error. And so um, verse 8, he offers a deal. I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put riders on all of them. That's a lie. That's a cheat. It was a scheme. Remember, this is like how the devil works. He promises us certain things. It's a trick. Don't fall for it. It's like the bait on a mouse trap. Rabshakeh offered this deal. Don't trust him, Hezekiah. And brethren, don't trust the devil. And there's another lie in verse 10. This guy's adding lie upon lie. Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. The Lord hadn't said this to Rabshakeh and Sennacherib. He's lying. Remember, he's also a politician. Politicians often lie. You've heard the old thing. How can you tell if a politician is lying? His lips are moving. Well, we do have a few good honest politicians, but they often lie when they say they're religious. They'll misquote the Bible. They'll say they go to church. And they don't. They, they use religion, just like Rabshak is trying to use the Judaism religion to say, well, I'm not that bad. We can work something out. No, don't believe it. Interesting something in verse 11. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand, but don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. In other words, we don't want them to hear it. Uh, they speak Hebrew, so speak to us in Aramaic. Those were similar languages. They had the same alphabet and a lot of the same words, but um, what they're saying is, uh, we don't want everybody, it, it'll spread doubt and rebellion amongst the people. So speak to us in Aramaic and we'll go back to the king and translated to Hebrew and so forth. Uh, by the way, this tells us the devil knows a lot of languages. He knows how to lie in a thousand languages. Verse 14, we're skipping ahead. Rabshakeh now tries to turn the people against Hezekiah, trying to foment a revolution. Don't trust your king. He's going to bring about destruction. Trust me. We're your friends. Satan is like that too. Don't trust in Jesus. That's what Satan says. Trust in me. I really 
got your best interests at heart. Then there's another entreaty to Hezekiah. This guy just doesn't give up. Look at verse 16. He entreats him yet again. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present. Come out to me. Every one of you shall eat his own vine, every one his own fig tree, every one of you drink from the waters of his own cistern, and so forth. It's a trick. It's a trap. Some of you have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I want to see a show of hands. Who's read Pilgrim's Progress? Good book written over 300 years ago. It's in the form of a make-believe story, and they give names like Mr. Faithful and Mr. This and Giant This. And Pilgrim stands for a Christian walking on his way to heaven. And it says he meets a certain person that's up to no good, but seems very clever and very friendly, and says, come with me and I'll you know, come to this certain place. And the, the, the Christian in the story says, he seems so persuasive, but I knew that if he got his hands on me over there, I'd become his slave. And so he said, get out of here. That's what the devil has in mind. He wants to enslave us in certain sins, like alcohol, drugs, immorality, and other such things. He can seem very persuasive, but if you go with him, you'll be his slave. It's just like Sennacherib and Rabshak, they wanted to take Jerusalem and make them all slaves. So they're trying to say, no, come out here and we'll, we'll reward you. You'll have fig trees and farms and drink the waters of your own sister and so forth. And uh, no, um, it's, it's a lie. Verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver you. Has anybody delivered you? Uh, no, these other nations. So he's boasting in verses 18 to 20. Boasting of his conquest, you can't fight me. Look at all the nations I've defeated. It's gone to his head. The Bible says, uh, pride goeth before fall and destruction. You know, I like to study World War II. Adolf Hitler was at the height of his power in early 1941. Um, he didn't defeat Great Britain, but he defeated France, Belgium, Netherlands, Norway, and he had made alliances with some other countries. And the German people were just drunk with exultation. Then he overextended himself. He declared war on Russia. And it turned the tide and led to his eventual defeat. But he was boasting. And that's what the devil does. You know, he says, I've got the whole world in my hands. Don't resist me. I'm stronger than you are. He's boasting. But he's got a fall coming. Okay, that leads us to chapter 37 now. Hezekiah hears this report, and it says he tears his clothes and covers himself with sackcloth. What's this? That was the Jewish custom of mourning. Like people today, some people still go to a funeral, women in black dresses, maybe with a veil, and women, men with a suit. It's a mourning custom. But back then, you would show your mourning and your repentance by tearing your clothes and putting on it says sackcloth. What's that? It's like burlap. It's very scratchy. It's cheap clothing that, that hurts. And sometimes they even throw dirt on their head and cry out aloud. So Hezekiah hears this and uh, he, it says he went into the house of the Lord. That's a good thing for us when we're in trouble. Don't let that keep you from going to church. Go to God and meet with God in church. So verses 2 to 4, he sends messengers to Isaiah the prophet. Remember, this is in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah was kind of like the um, spiritual advisor of King Hezekiah. 
And so the messengers repeat the words to Isaiah and fills them in on what's happening. Maybe Isaiah asks questions like, who does this Rabshakeh think he is? Rabshakeh. Hmm. So Hezekiah called on Isaiah to pray to God for protection from Rabshakeh. Verses 6 to 8, Isaiah's reply to Hezekiah. Now this is very interesting. Look at this very closely, verses 6 to 8. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord. That's like an ambassador quoting the man that sent him. Do not be afraid of the words with which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. This is what God is saying. Now look at this. Surely I will send a spirit, that's an evil angel, upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Lebanon. In other words, Rabshakeh and all these Assyrians are all around Jerusalem, laying siege, going to starve them out. And, and the Jews couldn't fight them off. They said, it's only a matter of time. So God says, leave it to me. I'm going to send an evil spirit out there that's going to whisper a lying rumor to Rabshakeh. You with me? He's going to say, you're surrounded back there. Another country is going to attack you from the rear and the Jews will come out and fight you here. You better run. You better retreat. Sometimes that happens in war uh, where you surround a person. So the, uh, this, this devil lies and God let him do that. And Rabshakeh said, we better go back to Assyria. Well, we're all going to be dead. And so this, this is an interesting providence. God can use evil for good. That lying spirit was lying. Don't know what he was up to, but Rabshakeh believed it. And yet God was innocent. God didn't lie. God gave him what he deserved. Let that evil spirit tell the lie. Tells us a lot about God's unusual providence because this Rabshakeh was clever as a good, good general and he knew that if there's someone, uh, army behind you, you better turn and go east or west or you're going to be chopped meat. And um, remember, he's the one together with Snackman boasting so much. And so um, God used his weakness against him. I don't know, anybody here ever do martial arts? Better not put my hand up. I haven't. Linda Charbonneau had a black belt in Taekwondo. Did you guys know that? She showed us a picture once. You remember that picture? Doing those high kicks like Chuck Norris. Knocking something off of somebody's head with her foot. There's a special kind of um, martial arts called judo. You use the other person's strength and weight against him. That's what God was doing with Rabshakeh. So in judo, person will lunge at you and you grab him and you throw him over your shoulder and his old weight comes crashing down. What happened? You're using his strength and his weight against him. That's judo. Karate is chops and then taekwondo is kicks and so forth. But God is using Rabshakeh's cleverness against him. He was a general, so he said, retreat or you're going to die. Yes. He fell for it. Very clever. And yet God is blameless in this. God was very wise. Okay, skip down to verse 14. Hezekiah now uh, listens to Isaiah's reply and he lays it out before God as well as Rabshakeh's message. 
And there's a lesson for us. When we're in danger, when we're in a trial, lay the situation before God. Say, God, here's the way it is. Help. Give me guidance. I'm not sure what to do. Help, God. That's a good prayer. Help. Very short word. And uh, verse 16, he appeals to the Lord on one main point. What should we appeal to, to God? Well, we can say, Lord, you are wise, you are merciful, you are strong. What he did is, he said, you are the only God. That covers everything. You're wise, loving. You can do anything. When you go to God, realize he's the one and only God. And I don't want to say remind him, but in effect, that's what you're doing because we find examples of this, even in this prayer. Lord, you are the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Verse 21, a few more verses down. God heard him and gave Isaiah a reply to pass on to Hezekiah. Verses 22 to the end of uh, verse 35, Rabshakeh had insulted God and Hezekiah said, I'm not going to stand for this. He has insulted the one and only living God. Uh, does that sound like anybody else in the Bible? David. David. in Hebrew. Uh, Goliath, this pagan giant that was about nine feet tall, had insulted God and everybody's afraid to fight him. And David, little kind of a short guy, said, He's insulted God. Isn't anybody going to stand up against him? Nobody else will. I will. We need to have courage like that as well. Hezekiah said, he's insulted God. We can't stand for that. People are insulting God today. They're mocking him, blaspheming him. We need to stand up and say, I'm on God's side. You're wrong. So God rebukes Rabshakeh. Same thing with the devil. The devil insults God. Now, look at this in verses 36 to 38. Another very unusual providence. God had already done something with Rabshakeh retreated. There was a famous Puritan book called Rabshakeh's Retreat, saying that's a type of Satan having to flee. Now, they, they came back and they're still encircling, going against, the Assyrians are going against the Jews. The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185 thousand soldiers. When the people arose in the morning, they were corpses, all dead. Well, of course, corpse is dead. That's what corpse is. So God said, Hezekiah, you prayed to me for protection? Stand back. He sent an angel. Killed 185,000. You know, I've studied World War II, and some of the battles they lost this in, the, in Verdun in World War I, and the Psalm and Battle of the Bulge and all these, but 185,000 in one night. Now when it says, he sent the angel of the Lord, your Bible might have a note in the margin, that could either be one of the angels, like Michael or Gabriel, or it could be the angel. Now angel meant messenger. This could be referring to the Lord Jesus, who's not a created angel, he's God that comes and does things. Either way, think about it. It was so easy, it'd be like, uh, if you saw a field covered with ants, how many do you think you could kill by stepping on in one night? 185,000. It'd be just so easy. And God did this through this, this great angel, but it's an unusual providence. And so maybe there were some survivors or the Jews went out there. It says early in the morning they saw dead bodies. 185,000. That's a lot of dead bodies out there. 
And uh, the Assyrians didn't take their bodies back to Assyria to bury them. They just let them there for the scavenging animals to, to eat. And so, uh, what do you think the Jews thought? They praised God. Verse 37, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away. I guess so, like a, a whipped dog with his tail between his legs. He said, I, I'm not messing with these Jews anymore. What happens when he gets back? Home, verse 38, it came to pass that Sennacherib was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his false god, that his sons struck him down with the sword and killed him, murdered him. Imagine, that's called patricide, killing your father. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And then a third son became the next king. By the way, that was not unusual in ancient days to kill someone, and then you become the king, or you become the next in line. Um, I think Adolf Hitler got power. It wasn't just taking over from the president, but a couple of months after he uh, took over, he said, okay, got the SS, go out and kill all my enemies. And it was the night of the long knives, and hundreds and hundreds of the SA, including his main rival, were just murdered. And yet the people said, what great man, they were murderers, and there's still high intrigue and murder in high places around the world. There's always more than what the news reports. Well, that's chapter 37. More about the story of Hezekiah in verse 38. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. Failed illness, they didn't have many doctors then. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. People back then lived a lot shorter because if you got sick, you often died very soon. They didn't have much medicine, few doctors, no hospitals. So Isaiah came to him. There's a lesson to us. When we get very sick, go to the doctor and also contact the preacher and the elders to say, pray for me and we might come and visit you. Just like Isaiah showed up there. Notice what Isaiah said. Set your house in order. King, you're going to die. What does it mean, set your house in order? Let's get serious. We need to set our house in order, even if we're not on our deathbed. It means to have a will, have a burial site, have insurance, maybe life insurance. Uh, we have more than one handout out there, and I'd especially recommend one uh, on preparing for death. Do you have a funeral prepared? Who's going to lead it? Pallbearers, very specific form that you can fill out Make a copy and give to your spouse or your children or next of kin or to me uh, to know what do we do when you die. Because we're going to die. We need to set our house in order. But the most important thing is get ready to meet God when we die. I have spoken to people on their deathbed. Of course, I had the ministry at the nursing home, and every now and then one would die. And I've met with people that are, have a fatal illness. I remember meeting with my dad a few months before he died, and the doctor said, you have inoperable cancer. It's going to be painful. And I sat down and talked to him very, very heart-to-heart, man-to-man, about getting ready to meet God and how to get saved. Maybe you can do that with your parents. And I've talked to others. Uh, I've talked to prison inmates. I remember talking to one by mail who was on death row and he later got executed a few weeks later. 
What would you say to someone that says, I'm dying? How do I get ready to meet God? I've told you this story. I used to do a lot of hunting when we lived back in Texas. And I used to hang around these other hunters at the end of the day. You know, you sit around a campfire and tell about the one that got away and you boast about the one that you killed and all. And so they're all sitting around. These were very ungodly, profane men, but they knew that I was a preacher and I tried witnessing to them. A few nights later, the biggest, toughest of them came up to me and said, Kirk, can we talk? I said, yes. Yeah. Well, let's go into the hunting cabin. Went in there, this, just a shack. And I thought, I, this guy was all muscle and mean like a bear. I thought he was going to beat me up or say, I've had this, enough of this religion. I don't want to hear any more from you. He didn't do anything. He started crying. I said, what's wrong, buddy? He said, the doctor says I have cancer. I'm going to die. I'm scared to death. And he grabbed me and said, how do you die? Help me, help me, help me. And I told him how to get ready to meet God by believing in Jesus. I'm glad I was there when he needed me. He later did treatment and recover, and he said, well, I'm not interested in religion. I said, Lonnie, you're still going to die. God gave you more time, but just like he gave Hezekiah, but don't count on it. Never knew what ever happened to Lonnie. We need to get ready to meet God. If you're not a Christian, do it immediately. Don't boast about tomorrow. You may not live till tomorrow. But in any case, we're all going to die one day. Some people say, well, I'll do it when I'm on my deathbed. And then you die the day before that. Satan takes your soul to hell. So here's bold Isaiah speaking the truth. You're going to die and you're not going to live. You know, I can share this with you as a pastor. I visited people in hospice care. You know what hospice care is when they're caring for someone that is going to die within a few days or weeks. And other ones have been told they have a fatal, incurable illness or are they going to try some experimental things. And the doctors usually do not speak straightforwardly saying, yes, you're going to die. Their ethical reasons, their policies, insurance, all sorts of reasons, they'll always say, well, there's always hope. Maybe an experimental drug or, you know, it might be better than we thought it was. They, they, they cover themselves. But sometimes a person senses, I'm going to die. I'm losing ground. I feel like a man on a rope and I'm sliding off and I'm going to fall. And they can sometimes sense this. They said, I know I'm going to die. Won't the doctors tell me? No. Maybe you'll be the person that can say, yes, you're going to die either now or sooner or later. I heard about a man that was not a Christian. He was in the hospital and he sensed, I'm going to die. And he'd ask the doctor and the doctor would change his stuff and say, well, you know, we, we might be able to help you. But the way they were saying it, this poor man realized He's covering it up. He doesn't want to tell me I'm going to die of this. And so he'd ask the doctor. The doctor would blow smoke and not answer him. Ask the nurse the same thing. And he wanted someone to talk to that would tell him the truth and how to get ready to meet God. And so a scrub woman comes in with her mop and is mopping up. And he says to her, I'm dying. Could you tell me how to die? And she put the mop down and says, yes, I can tell you. I'm a Christian. Here's what's going to happen when you die, and here's how you can get ready to meet God. This is why Jesus died. I think the story ends where he did become a Christian, but thank God for that godly scrub woman. Probably didn't go any further than sixth grade, 
But she sees the opportunity and says, yes, you're going to die. Told the truth and told the man what he needed to hear. Let's imitate that scrub woman and imitate Isaiah. You remember what that thief on the cross said to Jesus when he was dying? He says, remember me. And Jesus basically said, yeah, you are going to die. But you'll be with me in heaven today because you're believing in me. Jesus didn't soft-spoke it. He, he said, yes, you're going to die. That's what Isaiah said, and that's what we're going to, you know, we need to prepare to meet God. So what did Hezekiah do? Verse 2, turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. Oh, that's rich. So should we in an emergency. Have you ever had a bad medical report? I have. I'll spare you the details, but more than once I've heard a doctor say, Kurt, it's very, very bad. You could die. I've heard that more than once. God was merciful. But I remember when the doctor, one doctor gave me that report on Christmas Eve, 1979. I paused and I said, Doc, can I pray? He said, yes, because he was a Christian. And I prayed and I said, God, help me. Help me. Is this the end? Turn to God in an emergency, especially a life and death one. Just like he did. Back to the text here. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, prayed to the Lord, and he said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. I've done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, he's not boasting, but he's reminding God, I, 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 I believed in you. I've, I've, I've worked for you. I brought in revival. He was honest. And he wept. So should we. Do you ever weep in prayer? I do sometimes. Weep with those that weep. And when you're talking to someone that's in bad medical condition, weep with them. And Jesus wept. At least three times we're told in the Bible. So how did God respond? God responded with Isaiah through Isaiah and said, verse 5, Go and tell Hezekiah, this says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. God hears our prayers too. I like this. I've seen your tears. If you've ever wept, grieving, afraid, bad medical report, God sees your tears. David wept a lot. Did you know David was a man's man? You know, you talk about someone that's strong. He was the only one that went out against Goliath. He was a mighty warrior that killed hundreds of people with just a sword or a spear. He was a brave man, man of God. And yet, in the Psalms, he often said, I wept before the Lord. Men, don't be afraid to weep. Here's Hezekiah weeping, but look at this. God says, I've seen your tears. And in one of his Psalms, David said, you have stored up my tears in your bottle. That was a Hebrew custom. Our tears are precious to God. He sees our tears. He hears our prayers. And so God said, I will answer your prayer, Hezekiah. I'm going to heal you. and going to give you 15 more years, Hezekiah. God, the Bible says God gives life. He takes it away. He can give it back. Now, God doesn't always do this. God, Hezekiah prayed. He didn't cut a deal. God, if you... Give me five more years, I'll do this. People do that on their deathbed. Sometimes they get better and they forget about the deal. So don't cut a deal. He is just simply trusting in God. And so God said, I'm going to give you 15 more years. 
And so Hezekiah had some more work to do for God. Have you ever heard the old phrase? Logan, write this down. You probably have heard it. God will not take his children to heaven until their work on earth is done. Have you heard that one? God's not going to take us to heaven until our work is done, whatever that work is. So Hezekiah had more work to be done. And I've known other Christians that were literally on deathbed and the doctors gave up hope. They didn't say it like that. But they, that person got better and said, God has spared me for a reason. Let me find out what that reason is and serve him. My mind goes back to a very godly um, United States Senator. Anybody remember Jesse Helms? He was a godly Christian from North Carolina. I thought he would have made a good president, but and was that September 1983? Anybody remember the KAL, the Russian shot down an American airliner, KAL 007? Jesse Helms was supposed to be on that plane. But at the last minute, he gave the seat over to a congressman who was also a godly Christian. And Helms said, God spared me. I should have been on that plane, but... And he said, God still has something for me to do in the United States Senate. He was considered the conscience of the Senate for years. God is, I wonder if anybody here has ever faced death in the face. When you said, I don't know how I survived that accident, men in war, disease or whatever. God spared me. I remember, you've heard my testimony. God spared me. I won't tell you how many times I came that close to dying. And I'm glad he spared me. God had more for me to do. Think about that. When God spared you, there are probably people here tonight that have been that close to dying. And you say, I don't know how I survived that car accident or that fire. Or that guy tried to rob me and he dropped the gun and I ran. How? It's because God protected you and was giving you more time. Now, if you are not a Christian, it's because, as the Bible says, he has given you time to repent. He's given you a second chance. Don't waste it. And if you're a Christian, don't waste the time that God has given. God gave Hezekiah 15 more years. Our time is in God's hands. How did Hezekiah respond? How did, how did you respond when God saw you through a major life-changing emergency? When you should have died, how did you respond? Did you thank him? And what will you do with those extra years God gave you? Think about that. Verses 6 and 7, God says, I will deliver you in this city, that's Jerusalem, from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will, def I will defend this city. It's like, it's like he said, you know you're talking to Hezekiah? It's so easy. One angel I sent out, they killed 185,000. I had Rabshakeh, leave it to me. It's going to be easy. Trials played for me. I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing. In other words, Hezekiah was wondering, are you going to send an angel again or a lying spirit? How are you going to do it, Lord? Can you give me a sign? This is an, one of the interesting verses in the whole Bible. Look at verse 8. God says, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backwards. There's the sign. The sun Return 10 degrees on the dial. Now, you know what a sundial is. It's got that little triangle on it. And that was all the numbers around it like a clock. And as the sun moves, it's like a clock telling you the time. It says here, and the sun goes down, there's no more shadow. God says, I'm going to work a miracle so that the shadow goes backwards. Not like a broken clock where it goes backwards. 
you realize this was probably the biggest cosmic miracle God had done. He stopped the revolving of the earth around the sun. For it says 10 degrees. I'm not sure how long that is. You know, maybe a couple hours. It stopped. And it went backwards. I wonder how many... There were records from the Chinese saying something strange happening. The shadows going backwards and the animals are coming out of hibernation. God stopped the revolving of the earth and it went backwards. That's a massive miracle. It was easy for God. Now, this has often been tied in with a similar miracle. Anybody want to tell me who was involved? Joshua. Joshua's long day where Joshua, the, the, the general in charge of the Jewish army, was fighting and they said... We're about to win, but if the sun goes down, we'll probably lose. We'll be vulnerable in the dark. So he said, Lord, give me more time to keep fighting and we'll be able to win this battle for you. So God stopped the sun from going down for a few more hours. Again, similar to this. Stop the sun, stop the earth revolving around the sun. I'm sure the enemies were saying, what is going on here? This is spooky. This was not an eclipse in these two instances. It's not like the changing of the clocks for daylight savings or the changing of the Julian calendar. No, it was a miracle from God. And uh, I'm sure Hezekiah and the Jews wondered, this is the one true God that has authority over all creation. Okay, principle, apply this to yourself. God gives a promise. How can you know it? Just remember what God did in the past. It'd be so easy for God to do a wonderful thing in your case, to save your soul, to heal you, to prepare you to go to heaven. God does it so easily because he is omnipotent. He has all power. Now, uh, 9 to 20, we'll just skip over it very quickly. Hezekiah's testimony. In the writing of Hezekiah, wait a second. He didn't write a book of the Bible, but he wrote this account down and had it read to the people, it says, after he had been sick and recovered, we, we don't have, the, sometimes preachers will refer to a, a certain saying and say, well, that's in Second Hezekiah chapter 5. But there was a book that Hezekiah wrote, but we just don't have it. And so he's testifying. Here's a good lesson for us. When God does something wonderful in your life, thank God and testify it to other people so that they can glorify God as well. Just today, the elders and I heard the wonderful testimony of someone that was saved just a couple of months ago. And we were smiling and praising God. He testified. God had saved me. I had a terrible life with alcohol and drugs and just terrible. But I turned to God and I'm a new person. Testify. Who was the first person you told when you became a Christian? Notice a couple of things here. He said, starts it off by saying, I've been sick. I'd recovered and God saved my life. God has saved our souls if we're Christians. Skip down to verse 17. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. And here he prays, you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. Look at that. I, he lovingly did this. He loved Hezekiah. That's why he healed him. God lovingly saved you. Why did he save you? Because he loved you. And he still loves you. And if you're lost, he loves you and offers you salvation. Also, it says he, you have cast all my sins behind your back. Notice the word all. When a person gets saved, 
God forgives all of our sins. And he says he throws them behind his back. It says in the book of Micah, he throws them into the deepest part of the ocean. It says in Isaiah 1.18, he washes them all away. Not some, not most, all. Just imagine that. Millions of sins that you've committed, all deleted. Your files are deleted permanently. Can't be even taken back from the bottom part of your computer. God forgives everything. Also, look at the end of the chapter. We're almost finished for tonight. Isaiah had said, remember, he came to him and said, you're going to die. No, God's going to give you more time. So he says, let them take a lump of figs, apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. So it was evidently a boil that had poison in it that can spread through the body and kill a person. That's why you've got to be careful if you have a boil. That's more than just a pimple. That can have poison. It can lead to death. So he said, take a lump of figs, make it into in a certain thing, put it on there, and he'll recover. Of course, that was basic medicine, but it was still a miracle. point is God uses medicine. God can heal directly, easy. Or God can use medicine. He can use therapy. He can use surgery. He's like a doctor that has a hundred different instruments he can use. But ultimately, it's God, the great physician. So we go to God as well as the doctor, like Dr. Isaiah. Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Okay, briefly, chapter 39, which is a shorter chapter. Fast forward, there's now a new king in Babylon. The greatest king in Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. He has died. God had dealt with him. Now a new king arises, and Babylon was south of Assyria. They would conquer Assyria, which had never conquered southern Israel, Babylon now will conquer southern Israel. That often happens in war. It kind of goes back and forth, north, south, east, and west. But verse 1 says, he hears of Hezekiah's recovery, so he sends congratulations. But like Rabshakeh, there's a hook in this bait. It's a trick. It's a stealth. And Hezekiah fell for it. Verse 2, he shows off. He gets the king there. Shows him all this wealth and all the blessings of the temple and the palace. He's boasting. He's imitating Rabshakeh. Pride, presumption. And here's where we see his weakness. Politicians, the higher they get, tend to be boastful. God can bring them down. Hezekiah is showing off. And this is going to be used against him. He's showing his weapons and his troops and all his wealth. And I'm sure that king is writing it all down and saying, well, where's the weak points? Okay, he doesn't see what he's doing. Listen, if you're playing cards with someone, don't tip your hand and show them what you're holding. Not just in poker, but in old maid or any other game. You don't tip your hands. And that's what he's doing here. I remember during the Persian Gulf War, and many of y'all not old enough to remember it, was it 1991, um, our troops went in to go after Saddam Hussein and so forth, and then there was a press conference, and uh, it was Donald Rumsfeld, who was a very gutsy sort of guy, and he was in charge of that because he was the Secretary of Defense, and uh, one of the reporters said, are we stuck in a mire like in Vietnam? He said, we've only been there two weeks, next question. And so the next question was also equally stupid and said, well, what are you going to do next? Can you give us the specifics? And Rumsfeld hit the city and says, you think I'm going to tell you? They're listening in. I'm not going to tip my hand. You know, don't ask stupid questions like that. 
Did you hear what President Biden said this last week? And I respected him for this. He said, we're going to respond in our own way and in a time of our own choosing. And we're not telling you what we're going to do. I was very wise. Well, Hezekiah was very unwise. And so Isaiah comes back, verses 3 and 4, and rebukes him. Thank God for preachers that have the ear of key political leaders. Now, not me. I've never met a key political leader except to shake hands with a senator once. But um, I, I guess I can say this. Uh, one of the speakers at our conference this year is very close to Governor Ron DeSantis. He's his spiritual advisor. That's Tom Askell. Pray for the advisors to give the good biblical advice, even to warn them and to rebuke them. Billy Graham was like that with a lot of presidents and had the courage to say, Mr. President, you're wrong. You've broken God's law. Isaiah came back. Okay, verses 5 to 7. Now Isaiah, like other prophets, warned that Babylon would take Israel. Hezekiah, God protected Israel, especially Jerusalem, temporarily. Read about this in Jeremiah where God said, I kept giving them chances to repent, even in revival. They went back to their idolatry. The time's going to come. You can repent all you want to. I'm still sitting in the Babylonians. And that's what happened after Hezekiah died and after another king arose. Uh, the Babylonians came in and took it. And just like Isaiah said, Babylon would take over. And God's not going to protect you anymore. You haven't repented. They didn't heed, the people didn't heed God's warnings. We should heed God's warnings. And it says here that the Babylonians would also take Hezekiah's offspring, his sons as slaves, back to Babylon. Lastly, look at verse 8. How did Hezekiah reply to this? The word of the Lord, which you have spoken, is good. Here we see his mixed attitude. He's agreeing without grumbling. He says, yes. Babylon is going to take us. We deserve this. He's not blaming God. But look what he, now else he says. He said, at least there'll be peace and truth in my days. That's kind of smug saying, well, it's going to happen to my sons and the rest of the nation, but at least I'm going to live and not going to see this. But he should have sought the Lord. He was given a glimpse of the future and said, well, I won't live to see that utter destruction upon Jerusalem. You know, when you're a young Christian, it's hard to predict the future, but us old geezers sometimes realize I'm closer to death than I am to my birthday. And we can sometimes foresee things that are getting worse and worse and worse, and we can project because we can look back and say, I remember 50 years ago it was like this, and it's gotten worse. All i got to do is predict that into the future, and it's going to get worse unless God intervenes. But at least I'll, I'm not going to live to see all that. I'm going to die, kind of like Isaiah. I won't live to see that, but, oh, I need to warn people, don't you see the course and the direction we're going? Listen to some older people. We've been further down the road than the young people. Okay, the conclusion of this message tonight is this. Hezekiah was a good example, but at last he had weaknesses. He wasn't perfect. Best of men are men at best. So we should imitate the good examples of people like Hezekiah and avoid the bad examples. Even in good people, we'll have bad examples and have the wisdom to know the difference between these. But always imitate the one that's always the perfect example and his name 
is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn the lessons from these chapters and imitate the good and avoid the bad. And above all, to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.